This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. We have to say, if I don't have the physical reserves, the emotional reserves, the spiritual reserves, I can't give. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to the Church Lobby Podcast, Conversations on Faith and Ministry. My guest today is Craig T. Owens. He's a pastor, an author, the co-host of the podcast, The Craig and Greg Show, and he blogs at craigtowens.com. In this conversation, Craig and I talk about the subjects that he addressed in his recent book, Shepherd Leadership, The Metrics That Really Matter. Some of the important subjects we will talk about include how to redefine success in ministry, a topic that you know has been huge for me in recent years. We're going to talk about the tendency to lead based in confidence or humility, which is really interesting, and I love his take on these two things. Some of us lead primarily with confidence. Some of us lead primarily with humility. Both of them have great value, and both of them need to be balanced properly. Next, we'll talk about the essential nature of Sabbath in a life of ministry. Then we'll talk about the relationship of wisdom to shepherding. And then finally, we'll talk about the importance of overcoming guilt as a motivator for how we make decisions in ministry. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Well, welcome to the podcast today. It is good to have you on, Craig. I sure appreciate your time today. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. Really excited. Uh, thank you. Me too. I don't know how I got a hold of your book, Shepherd Leadership, but somehow I did get a hold of it not too long ago. And, you know, for some reason, yours did not get lost deep down into the pile, but it got pulled out fairly early. And I think the reason it got pulled out fairly early was because the subtitle really caught my attention more even than the title was the metrics that really matter. Mm-hmm. Because as a, a pastor and a person who works with small church pastor metrics for small church pastors, especially kind of the, the idea of having to count all the time overwhelms us, especially when the numbers aren't great. Yes. And so anytime somebody takes a new approach to metrics, I always want to take a look at that. So I really appreciate the way you approach it. And what I want to do in our talk today is there are four particular segments of the book that I think will relate particularly to our listeners today, and hopefully will whet their appetites to want to pick up the book on their own to read later. So just to give everybody an idea where we're going to go, we're going to look at success in ministry. We're going to look at a a contrast that you make between people who have a tendency towards confidence and those who tend towards humility. You have some real great things to say about that. The importance of Sabbath is number three. And then number four, uh, you talk about the relationship of wisdom to shepherding. So that's what I'd like to kind of a roadmap for where I want to take us today. So let's start with the idea of success in ministry, the subtitle, the metrics that really matter. And then even before we get to page one, where we're in still in Roman numeral page numbers, <laughs> right? Right. Which is, which is weird. I, I'm on Goodreads. Are you on Goodreads or anything like that? Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Because when I'm on Goodreads and I've started a book and I'm only in the intro and still on the Roman numerals, like I can't even put a number in to how far I am in the book, right? Right. Yeah, it's really awkward. So we're in that part uh, there where you say, we are using the wrong metrics to define success in ministries. I fear that our focus on, that in our focus on unbiblical practices, we are missing the joy of really doing Mm. ministry. What is wrong about the metrics we're currently using? Well, you know, here's, the words that I've kind of played around with before before I, I started working with metrics was this idea of there are things that are biblical. The Bible clearly tells us this is what we're supposed to do. There are some things that are unbiblical. The Bible clearly tells us these are the things we're not supposed to do. But then there's this area that I think a lot of people struggle with that I would call non-biblical. The Bible doesn't give explicit instructions one way or the other we are left to pull out the the things that the Bible would tell us, the, the principles that are there, but it's not explicitly listed. So for instance, one of the things that we have come up with is saying, this is how we're going to gauge success 
for our church, most places use a metric of saying, let's count the nickels, let's count the noses. But if we go to the Bible, that's a non-biblical issue. It's not yeah. listed there where the Apostle Paul says something like, you know, your church at year three has to be at this attendance level, or, you know, over the last five years, you have to see a growth rate of X percentage. Those aren't there. And so when we start putting everything on these non-biblical things, I think that that's why I said it robs us of joy because we're trying to count something that the Bible never told us to count. And then we feel, especially the, the small church pastors, start feeling like, well, in comparison to that church over there, especially the mega church, you know, I'm I'm feeling woefully inadequate. I'm really falling behind. And that's why I think a lot of pastors lose their joy and end up maybe resigning their church. And sadly, a lot of them, they resign their church, they resign their minister, ministerial credentials as well, and just kind of throwing the towel on the whole thing. So that really was a heavy on my heart. And so that's why I wanted to frame yeah. it like, is there a different metric that we can look at that the Bible says we should be counting? Okay. So I, I love that because you don't say metrics don't matter. You're saying right. there is a different form of metrics that matter. So what is it if it's not the metrics we've been used to, if it's not nickels and noses, if it's not about the quantitative gains, what is it that we should be doing instead? So I think one of the things that the Bible makes very clear to us is excellence in our work. You know, Paul would say, if you have this gift, use it excellently, do do mm -hmm. it to its utmost. And so I think that that has to be foremost in my mind as a pastor. I have to say, the gifts that I've been given, am I using them in an excellent way? Am I, am I putting my very best effort into it? And I think that the other one is the the faithfulness in the ministry, that Jesus will use that, if we can put the term metrics in there again, he'll say, don't put your hand to the plow and then look back, count the cost. Hmm. And I think that we need to um, let some of our pastors know that are going into small churches, many of them aren't prepared when you say, hey, it's going to be hard. You're in a rural community, you're in a really small town, it's going to be tough because, and you give them that. I still think that a lot of people don't really grasp it until they get in there. But if God's the one who called you there, then God will provide for you to be there. Your job is to be faithful in that role where he's placed you. Yeah, I'm really grateful for you framing it that way, both faithfulness and excellence, because quite often I'll talk to people and it'll be one of the other. It'll either be, oh, just stay faithful, which mm -hmm. in a lot of people's minds gets interpreted as just hang in there. <laughs> don't just leave. Show up. Right. Yeah. Just show up. And like, that's not enough or others. Well, we've got to do everything with excellence and the idea of simple faithfulness and obedience doesn't seem to factor in there either. And both end up in bad places off to the side, but the two of them, I think keeps us down a center road that is really, really helpful. It's not just simply staying a long time. It's doing it with excellence while you're there. And it's not just doing right. it well, it's doing it obediently and faithfully and quite often our interpretation of excellence is very different than Christ's interpretation of excellence, right? For sure. Yeah. I love the balance. And you know, I don't like, I don't have any problems with growth. This is not an anti-growth yeah. book. I'm not yelling at anybody because your big church is not uh, meeting the needs. That That's not what, what we're saying. We're saying that don't use that kind of measurement and impose it on yourself and then you feel like, oh, I'm falling short when it is a non-biblical metric. If God wants to grow that church and he wants to make it huge, he will. And if he says, look, this is how many sheep I need you to, to care for in this flock, in this community, then we need to be faithful and excellent with that size flock. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think maybe in the last 40, 50 years, there has been a, that we've had a chance to do with church growth what has been done in a lot of the other behavioral sciences, which is figuring out how to measure excellence in certain ways that is quite often very helpful. But because it's like any new toy, it, you and I are old enough to remember when word processors and computers first came out and all of a sudden there were all these cool fonts available. 
mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And if you look back at any of the artwork that was done at the time, it was this dizzying array of 10 different fonts on every flyer because we could, right? right. So right. the toy is like, we, we go a little crazy with it. And then we start backing off and realizing maybe, a, you know, a, a simple sans serif font with maybe a little bit of a serif font thrown in for the subtitle is about all we need. <laughs> And it's kind of the same thing, I think, with the science of church growth. We've got these new tools and these new ideas, and many of them are very helpful. And then we end up concentrating on these, and I like that you called it non-biblical, not unbiblical. Right. Because they're not unbiblical, they're not against the Bible, but they're simply extra-biblical or or non-biblical. And we, we fall in love with them, and in doing so, we sometimes fall in love with these new toys and sacrifice the basic foundational biblical premises that Jesus said need to be in place for mm-hmm. him to build his church, right? Right, right. And then the other thing that I think people need to guard against is that if we take a non-biblical metric and somehow in our minds elevate it to a biblical status, then that's when we can start to have some very unbiblical attitudes about it because we can there start, we go. you know, the pride yeah. can come in or the frustration or the self-sufficiency. Well, God's not getting me to that level. So now I got to work harder to get to that level. And those are very unbiblical things when we say, all right, I can take care of this. I don't need God's help. I need to, you know, just read the next book and go to the next seminar so that I can achieve this metrics. So that's that's the other part that can really hamper people as well is if they're pushing a non-biblical metric up and saying it's almost like it's in the Bible and yet it's not. Yeah, or we try to find ways of proof texting it to convince mm. ourselves that it is in the Bible, yeah. which yes. which may be worse. Right. Right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. No. I love that. There's a great way that you reframe success in ministry. I really, really love that. The second thing that that really hit me as I was going through the book was you talk about that leaders tend towards two poles, Mm -hmm. that some leaders tend towards confidence, some leaders tend towards humility. And I found it to be a really, really helpful approach. Can you walk us through what it means to be a leader who tends toward humility or towards confidence and how that affects our ministry and and the people and how people perceive each other, how one pole perceives the other, for instance. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think we obviously would want a perfect balance, you know, because nobody's going to follow a leader that doesn't have confidence. And it's like, I'm not really sure where we're going here. You know, that we want to follow a leader that has the confidence and is going to blaze the trail. But we also, we don't want somebody who is going to blaze the trail and then start, you know, kind of thumping their chest and saying, look at what I did. We want that humility part, but we don't want the, the leader that is so humble that they're like, okay, well, I'll just let everybody else figure this out because I'm really not that good. And so there does have to be a balance there. But I think that a lot of leaders tend towards one pole or the other. And then what happens is you can either make an excuse, well, that's just the way that I'm wired, and then just kind of consistently stick with one place or the other. Or you can let the Holy Spirit say, okay, you've wired me this way, but you also do need to bring some balance. You you need to bring some course correction to me as well so that the confident leader doesn't run over people and the humble leader doesn't let people run over them. You know, I, I need to find that that middle ground. And it's it's a constant tension. I don't think anybody finds the except for Jesus, nobody's gonna find the perfect balance point yeah. and just stay there. We're we're gonna just naturally gravitate towards our the way that God's wired us, but then we need to listen to the Holy Spirit that's nudging us back towards that center balanced point. Yeah. So let's talk about each of those. Cause I think it, once it's been laid out that way, I think most pastors can look at that and go, yeah, that I tend towards humility or I tend more towards confidence. Uh, and some of us are going to be, you know, fairly 50, 50 down the line, but most of us sure. are going to have a pretty strong leaning. So for those who tend towards humility, who tend to lean towards humility in their leadership, what advice would you give them to bring balance and how would you even advise them to perceive those who come across? Because I've noticed if people tend towards humility, they often look at people who tend towards confidence as though they have arrogance and it yes. isn't necessarily so. How do we talk to the humble leaning pastor first? One of the things that I, uh, the example that I use in uh, shepherd leadership is John the Baptist. We applaud in a lot of cases, you know, where he says, 
oh, Jesus has to increase, I have to decrease. I'm not even worthy to pull off his sandals. And we say, well, yeah, that is appropriate. Except that his humility went so far that when Jesus came to him and said, I want you to water baptize me, John wasn't going to even do that. I'm not even worthy to, to water baptize you. But Jesus said an interesting phrase to him. He says, you need to do this because it's going to fulfill righteousness. And when you look back at Jesus getting prepared, uh, you go back to the Old Testament, because of his priestly role, the priests have to be washed before they go into their service. They they have that ceremonially ceremony washing that is going to take place. So John, that could almost be his undoing that he became too humble. And so I think that the phrase that I have used often is just a short phrase that just says, God chose me. And so I like the fact that for the humble person to be reminded, God chose. I didn't pick this. It's not my skill set that earned me this position. I didn't climb this ladder to get here. God chose to give me this gift package, and he chose to place me in this pasture for this moment of time. And if he did that, then that must mean that he also implanted in me the skills that I need, the temperament that I need to be able to lead these sheep that he's placed under my care. And so I think that the humble person needs to keep reminding themselves, John, in his life, you can read the uh, prophecy that his father, Zechariah, pronounced over him. And it was pretty, it could be pretty overwhelming because it was pretty lofty. But I think John could go back to that and say, you know what, this is the word that God spoke over my life. And so this is what I need to live up to. So that's what I would counsel the humble person is to say, God chose. And so because he chose, he's also equipped and I need to keep leaning into that. Yeah. In the church in general, we tend to have a admiration for those who come across as humble and not quite the same appreciation for those who come across as confident, although Mm -hmm. increasingly in certain quarters in the church, confident to the point of arrogant is being celebrated as well. But I think traditionally, for the most part, humility is elevated and confidence is seen as arrogant. We've talked to the pastor who leans towards humility. Now let's talk to the pastor who leads towards confidence. How do we defend against some of the extremes in that? And how can we who aren't there have a healthier view of those who aren't arrogant, but are leaning more towards having a personality of confidence in ministry? Sure. Well, I go back to that phrase, God chose me. So the God chose part should give me confidence. But the fact that he chose me, if I'm going to be honest and look in the mirror of all the people that God could pick, why in the world would he pick me for this role? That should be the part that keeps me grounded, that brings me back to the humility part and and helps balance that out. I love the the quote from C.S. Lewis, where he said, you know, humility isn't thinking less of myself, it's just thinking of myself less. And that's what I think that the big thing is for the the leader that would tend towards confidence is to not say, look what I'm doing, but say, I can only do this because God has given me the ability to do this. Again, it's a, it's a constant tension. I think the confident person is going to, in their own, they're going to just naturally want to run over people. I know the way, I know the answers, here I go. And they're going to have to slow down and soften and let the Holy Spirit pull them that way. The humble person is going to naturally go towards, okay, well, you just go first. You probably know more than I do, you know, and they're going to have to allow the Holy Spirit to bring them back to that confidence to say, well, if God's placed me here, then I need to lead. And so both sides, you know, it's not my place to look at somebody and say, well, you're too humble. Um, You're just getting run over or to say, well, you're too confident. You're an arrogant person. That's for the Holy Spirit to deal with that person. Unless that's a brother or sister that comes to me and says, would you, would you talk to me here? Would you uh, lean into me a little bit and counsel me and and mentor me a little bit, then I can be honest with them. But other than that, I need to let the Holy Spirit be as unique with them as he is going to be with me. Yeah, that, that was really helpful to me. I'm, I tend to lean towards humility, just kind of like, oh, whatever you want, Let's what's your schedule? I'll fit into your schedule. And I've had to learn in recent years as the ministry has changed and as I'm, I need, I need to be more proactive. I need to be mm-hmm. um, more of a chooser rather than having things chosen for me. Yeah. And because I tend to lead towards humility, when I step up with confidence, there's this thing in the back of my head that tells me it's arrogance. 
Sure. Uh, yep. And yep. I've had to look at it and go, but that's not, I'm not arrogant by nature. I'm too humble by nature. And so when I think I'm just making demands like crazy on the other side, I tend to get responses like, oh, at least now I know where you stand. That's actually very helpful. Thank you. I was waiting sure. for you to step up and talk. <laughs> right? right. So I can lean to more towards confidence because my tendency towards humility is actually going to check me on that. Yes. Whereas the people on the other side, they tend to be worried about, well, if I do this, I'm going to get stepped on. And then when they do act humbly and act in a servanthood way, somebody goes, oh, it's nice to see you actually, you know, serving for a change instead of having to be in charge of the thing. And they, in fact, they, in fact, gain the confidence of people too, because people do want to see the balance of the two of those things. They don't want to see someone who's just being walked on on one side. They don't want to see somebody who always has to be in charge on the other side. Right. And that's why I think that the Holy Spirit will help us. But I think that one of the things too, is the deliberate action on my part. So for the humble uh, leader, I've counseled them many times to maybe keep a journal, to write down those times that this is when I felt like God had laid on my heart. This is the direction we were supposed to go. This is how I was supposed to lead. This is the decision that needed to be made here. Date it, write it down, write down the scriptures that you were reading, write down confirmation that maybe another brother or sister gave to you during that time so that you can go back to that and say, okay, this is what's going to fuel my confidence to know that God's called me to do this. And I think for the same thing, for the humble leader, you can certainly listen to the Holy Spirit saying, you didn't handle that very well. You just ran over some people there. You need to apologize. You need to slow down. But I think that the humble or the confident leader can also build in the humbling things in their life. They can say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take over the job maybe once or twice a month of the custodian. I'm going to go clean the the church building. And, you know, I'm going to purposely build those things in because I don't want to say, oh, that's beneath me. Somebody else can do that. I have to do some other things because I'm more important than that. So I I can build those things in that are going to kind of pull me back, keep me a little bit more grounded and and humbled. I love that idea of making it action oriented because the, the tendency would be, I'm going to try to think more humbly of myself. Well, Good luck with that. Uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to actually scrub the toilet. <laughs> That's a different thing. Yep. Yeah. It speaks to the person who's doing it as well. This is, they, they may feel humiliated by doing it the first time or two. And maybe that, you know, getting through that feeling of humiliation to the point where it's not humiliation because I've chosen to do it. It's humiliation. If somebody else makes me do it, it's right. not, it's humility. Right. If I choose to do it, there's yes. a big difference between those two. Yeah, I love the idea of making that action-oriented. That really helps. From that, let's move to the idea of Sabbath. You mentioned in the book that too many of us, especially in ministry, we tend to accept overwork overwork in the pastorate. It's kind of like, well, that's just what it is in the pastorate. We can't do anything about it. I remember right. in 15 years or so ago when I nearly, you know, a burn, when I burned out and almost flamed out in ministry, and I ended up in pastoral counseling. And the person who was working on counseling with me had been a pastor for 20 years themselves. So they knew what it was like in ministry. I'd actually gone to a couple counselors before that who had never been pastors. Mm. And when I laid out my schedule for them, immediately they were like, okay, no, this is, you got to stop doing this. This is ridiculous. And I was like, but that's pastoral ministry. And then I went to a guy who had been a pastor and he was like, yeah, that's just pastoral ministry. Looking back, I almost wish I'd stuck with one of the first two. (laughs) who actually recognized that, no, it doesn't matter if it's pastoral ministry or not. This is overwork. This is unhealthy. This is not good. Not taking a Sabbath is problematic. Yes. But because they didn't just go, oh, that's just ministry. I thought, oh, they don't understand. And they really did. They knew more than I was giving them credit for. Because as you say, right, we accept overwork as not just not a sin, not, we're not, but but in fact we're rewarded for it. How do we, right. how do we start challenging that? Well, I look at the life of Jesus, and we don't really see him trying to take a day. So you know that's what the Pharisees would get all excited about with him is like, wait a minute, you're doing something on this particular day that that should be reserved for the other six days. But if you look at Jesus's activities on the Sabbath day and the other six days, they look remarkably similar. And so I think that yeah. that's one of the things that, that we have to make sure we don't just try to confine it to a day. Because as pastors, we all know that like you can have the, in quotes, day off, and that's going to be the day that you know a family member calls and 
they've got a loved one that just got rushed to the hospital. And you can't say, well, sorry, it's my day off. I cannot minister today. Of course, you're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to get down to the hospital and minister to this family. And so what I try to advocate and live out in my own life is instead of a Sabbath day, Sabbath thing, building it into my schedule, because this is what I see in the life of Jesus when he says, I just got done with ministry. I fed 5,000, I taught them, and now I'm going to dismiss them. And because I feel spiritually depleted, I'm going to go pray. I need to spend this time praying. Or he's on the boat with the disciples. There's nobody to teach right now. There's nothing to do. I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. So I see Jesus being very tuned in to his physical levels, his emotional levels, his spiritual levels, and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, you need to replenish. You don't have anything to give here. And uh, that's that's what we need to, I think, build into our schedules as well, is having the the margin in there and allowing ourselves to say, there's going to be seasons. This These are really busy days. These are some days I don't have anything. I don't have to fill up the space and I don't have to feel guilty about looking at my calendar and going, there's nothing on here today. This is a day that I need to replenish. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com slash support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, it really is. When you look at Jesus' life, there's no sense in his times of rest, his times away from the crowd, his times alone with the Father. There's no sense of that these are exceptions from the rule, that these are non-ministry times, that all of it is integrated into the whole. It's all mm-hmm. necessary parts of it. But we don't do that. We we see a day off, a Sabbath uh, day, or even a week away as somehow something we ought to feel guilty for, or we're not doing ministry because I'm taking the day away from the church building. Right. When in fact, Jesus saw it as an integrated part of being a healthy person who's able to do ministry, right? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have to operate out of a place of health because, you know, it's kind of like when you're on the airplane, they tell you if you're traveling with a child, you have to put your oxygen mask on first. You're no good if you've passed out. You can't help that child. And it has to be the same thing with us as, as pastoral leaders is we have to say, if I don't have the physical reserves, the emotional reserves, the spiritual reserves, I can't give to anybody. So I can't really call it ministry at that point because I'm just, I'm doing it on fumes, but there's nothing behind it. And so there are going to be times that we get depleted, but then we have to listen and say, okay, my body is telling me I'm tired. So I'm not just going to artificially kind of keep going through my workday. Well, I need to be at the church building until this time. No, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm going to leave the church building now and Mm. go take a nap or do whatever replenishes me physically or spiritually or emotionally. We have to just be very tuned in to that just got squeezed out of me. I have to be refilled. Yeah. For a lot of people, it's an understanding of our personal rhythms of the way Mm -hmm. I've had to learn the hard way. Most of us learn these things the hard way 
that when right. I have an expenditure of energy, I'm an introvert. So when I'm expending energy by being in the room with a lot of other people, I used to just collapse afterwards and just try to keep going. And now I realize, okay, I've got to go to a Christmas party tonight. That's going to wear me out. I'm going to enjoy it, but I'm not going to be good the next, first half of the next day because right. being around that many people for small talk absolutely drains me. So I actually plan for downtimes after these things, but it took me a while. Well, I'm going to a party. It's not even work anyway. I got to work hard after that. No, I've got to, I've got to recover from that. Hey, listen, my, my hands up on that too. I'm also an introvert. I get refreshed being by myself. And so I do the same thing. Like I just recently had a funeral. And so as soon as I put the funeral on my calendar, I immediately booked out the next two, three hours on my, my schedule. I wasn't available then because I knew I needed to come home and just sit down on the couch and kind of, okay, yeah. I need to, I need to refresh here because otherwise the rest of the day, I'm no good. Maybe it carries over to the next day if I don't get the refreshing that I need. And the Holy Spirit will will speak to those things to us if we're going to listen. But if we have artificial, like, well, my to-do list isn't done yet today, so I just need to sit here and power through, or I'm not at the end of the workday yet, or this isn't my technical yeah. day off. When we have those artificial things, then I, I think it's really hard for us to find the time to to be refreshed. Yeah, especially if we're allowing guilt to drive us, which is where yes. far too many of us are. Yeah, I can hear in the back of my head some objections from listeners already about why this isn't going to work for them. And in fact, you know that because you address it really well in chapter 10. You deal with can'ts, won'ts, and don'ts. Mm -hmm. I can't Sabbath because no one is available to step in. I won't Sabbath because someone else might step in. And right. All of a sudden, I'm going to look unnecessary, right. or I don't Sabbath because I don't know how to Sabbath. Walk us through the can't, the won't, and the don't excuses and how to answer those. Well, I think that the, the can't and the won't goes back to that kind of confidence and humility thing. You know, you're, you're either saying that, you know, I can't step out of here because I'm too important, or I won't step out of here because somebody else is going to step in here. So I think that that's part of that. The, the more we get a handle on that balance of saying, you know, somebody else could do it. It might, would it be the same way as me? Probably not because they're not me, but that's okay. It's still going to get done. I think that that's where we have to kind of let some of those things go and not feel like I'm going to lose my place. Like, well, Hey, why do we have you around if these people can do it, you know, and they're doing it for free. They're volunteering and and we're paying you to do it, you know, or, or something like that. So we have to let those things go. I think the big one is the the don't. I don't know how to Sabbath. I don't know how to build that time in. That's where I think it it requires some time to take an honest look at your schedule to say, you know, are there things that I'm wasting some minutes, just little minutes here and there? I had to, uh, I love my iPhone. You know, it's with me all the time. But I found that like when I had a couple of down minutes, I'm just pulling out my phone and scrolling through yeah. something that's meaningless. And then you're, you're like, well, right. I just spent 15 minutes doing what? I mean, it, right. it accomplished absolutely nothing. Is there a better way I could have just spent 15 minutes? And so part of that is that like looking back at your schedule and saying, what did I, what did I do today? Where did the little minutes go here and there? And then trying to figure out how do I address those things? So the don't one is the big one of, I don't Sabbath because I just don't know how to do it. You're going to have to look at your schedule, maybe have somebody else look at your schedule. Mm -hmm. I had to start doing anything like in the evening or the weekends. Somebody said, do you want to, you know, can we schedule something here? I'd say, I don't schedule those. You have to run those by my wife. She'll be the one that say, you know what? You're going to have this during the day and you have this the next day. So that evening you're going to need recovery time. So we're not going to go do something that evening. Oh yeah. I, I didn't even think about connecting those yep. two together. So I think getting somebody else's eyes and input in your schedule of things is, is going to help you as well. But more than anything else, it's just going to have to be asking the Holy Spirit, show me where and how do I trend things out and how do I make this space available so that I can find the, the refreshing that I need. Yeah. Yeah. Living a life with Sabbath built into our attitude and into yes. the rhythms of our lives uh, is yep. so important. And it will look different for 
pretty much everybody because we Absolutely. all have different schedules and temperaments and energy flows and everything else. The way it works for me and you isn't going to be the way it works for somebody else. And so we've just, we, we've got to acknowledge that. And it, and it takes a few years, I think, for us to even understand the, our own rhythms of life. I had to go through some mini crashes after you know, busy seasons where I kept working to realize, wait a minute, this doesn't work anymore. And then I, not only am I not operating at optimum, I'm operating so suboptimally that in fact, I'd get way more benefit out of a nap because at least while I'm napping, I can't make that stupid mistake I just made. (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, you know what? That's one of the quotes that I have in the book is from a friend of mine. He shared this with me when I was, I was probably maybe like a senior in college or in high school. I mean, it was, it was early on in my life and he, we were wrapping up something and I was thinking, Hey, it's still early. We can go do something. He goes, I'm going to go home and go to bed now. And I was like, really? And he said, Craig, sometimes the, one of the most spiritual decisions I can make is to get a good night's sleep yep. because if I don't have the physical reserves, my patience isn't going to be very good the next day. I'm going to be nodding off during my prayer time or my Bible reading time being tired is going to sabotage a lot of things. And so I think that sometimes we underestimate, we, we think, Oh man, this is a guilty pleasure that I'm taking a nap when in reality it's vital. It's, it's such a fresh breath of air to, to energize us to take that 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, it really is an important thing. Speaking of that, this wise advice, I want to move to a next section of wisdom that actually applies to the shepherd part of the title of your book, Shepherd Leadership. Uh, And you talk about the relationship of wisdom to shepherding. One of the things you say is people with a deficiency of wisdom don't serve because they don't know how to serve. And as I read that, in my own mind, I also added, and often because they don't know the people they're called to serve. Mm-hmm. I, I call it the green room syndrome, where as, as in the last 10 years, you know, I've, I've been able to speak in a lot of different places. Uh, you know, most of the time I'm in smaller environments where it's just me or it's one or two other speakers from a small environment as well. But every once in a while, I'll speak at a larger conference where they have a green room and where all the speakers spend their entire time in the green room, unless they're out at a book signing table. And I watch this and to some degree, I get why, because it's kind of Sabbathing when you can, you need to step away from the crowd. So there's some of that in there, but for the most part, it's really not for the most part. It's, there are some of us who are living from green room to green room to green room. We are constantly disconnecting ourselves from the people we're leading because we think that that somehow is what leadership is about, that it's about this disconnect. And when we do that, it's hard to serve. It's hard to have a heart to serve Mm. when you don't even know the people you're serving, or as you put in the book, when we don't even know how to serve. So how does the wisdom of leadership apply to this idea of service and of being a shepherd to the people? Well, and that's the one of the reasons why I chose the title Shepherd Leadership. Originally, I was kind of leaning more towards the idea of servant. But what I liked about the idea of shepherd is the individualized care. Um, mm. You know, where where Jesus even said, there's going to be times that you're going to have to go do something for the one that you're not doing for the 99. He would know that. The shepherd would know that because he's right there with the sheep. And so he knows what the tendencies are. He knows, hey, when we get near water and the sunlight glistens off the water, this one sheep has a tendency to stray towards the water because they're fascinated by the glitter. This one sheep has a tendency to not want to go anywhere close to water, but I got to get them there so they can have a drink. You learn that about the sheep in no other way than being around the sheep. So when Jesus said, the sheep know my voice, I think it's the other way around too, that the shepherd also knows the unique voices of the sheep. And there is no other way but to be around and hear their voice and say, oh, this is what makes them uh, sing. This is what makes them moan. This is what makes them cry. This is I'm around them to be able to do that. And that's how you develop that that wisdom base then to know how to to treat each sheep uniquely uh, as God has wired them. Yeah. You also talk about the importance of admitting mistakes in ministry, which I learned years ago is one of the best ways to actually increase people's trust and confidence in you, even though it feels like it should do the opposite. Talk us through that. Why is it so important to admit our mistakes when they happen? Well, I think first of all, 
it humanizes you in people's eyes. I, you know, I'm not sure what it is about when you have the title pastor that people have these ideas about you, you know, I don't know about you, but when, when I first became a pastor, people would come to me and they'd ask me medical questions. They'd say, I'm thinking about buying this car. What do you think about it? I'm thinking about making this real estate deal. And and I'm like, I, why, why are you asking me? Like, yeah, I, you yeah. think all of a sudden, because it says pastor in front of my name, that I'm an expert in all of these topics. But I think that that's what happens is that people have this false idea. And when you say, sorry, I messed up here. Or you say, I think the reason why I messed up in this area is that I'm not very good at it. I'm not wired to do this. It gives other people a chance to use their giftings. So I'm not very good at kind of the administration of like crossing the T's, dotting the I's, filling out this form and that sort of thing. And so there was times that I'd miss a filing. This this form needed to be filed or submitted by this time. And I totally forgot because it's just, it's not what I do. Hey, I apologize. Um, we got a $15 late fee because I didn't file this thing. And then there's a lady in my church that said, I absolutely love doing that stuff. Let me take that over for you. And yeah. and it freed up some of my time. And it was something right in her wheelhouse. She loved doing that. So it, it humanizes you. And I think it opens up the possibility for other people to say, hey, that's where I'm gifted. That's that's what I love doing. Let, let me step in there and come alongside uh, in this ministry, which gets more people in ministry. And it, you know, we were just talking about Sabbathing. Okay. That's something now that I don't have to uh, have on my plate since I'm not good at it. It's very draining for me. Now I don't have that draining me anymore. I've got the time to uh, be refreshed in that, that space instead. Yeah. At this point, as, as we've been, as I've been reflecting back on everything we've been talking about so far, how much of what we're talking about and the mistakes we make are because we're being driven by guilt and how many of them we would make better decisions on if we were able to alleviate, just lay aside the guilt motivation that so many pastors are operating under, right? Sure. Absolutely. Yep. I feel guilty yeah. because I haven't measured up to this, or I feel guilty that I dropped the ball here, or I feel, yeah, absolutely. I think guilt is a huge uh, driving factor that if people could set that aside, there, there'd be a lot of freedom. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, we try to work that inside out. I'm going to try to stop feeling less guilty so I can take a couple of days off. But in fact, like most of everything in our lives, it worked out, it works outside in. Take a few days off. And after you start getting used to it, you'll stop feeling less guilty about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, hey, I took a couple of days off and things didn't fall apart. So yeah. that's, that's pretty good. Right. Yeah. Do the activity first, which has been your approach to it. Do the thing first. The feelings will follow. I think that's yes. so important. Yep. Uh, so, so much great stuff there, but let's, let's get to the lightning round before we let you go for today. All right. Okay. Are you ready yep. for that? I'm ready for okay. the lightning round. Alrighty. What are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? I think the biggest change that, that I've seen kind of what I was mentioning there, the, the humanizing of the pastor. I think that being with people in the community, not just uh, showing up on Sunday morning, but they say, oh, you're showing up to a city council meeting, or you're helping out with a uh, parade that the uh, Chamber of Commerce is putting on, and people see you in different places. At first, I'd see people like kind of looking around like, why are you here? And mm-hmm. now it's becoming more accepted. And I like that. I don't want people to just say, the only place I see you is standing up on a platform on Sunday morning, but I see other places as well. You're you're a real guy. Yeah, that's a real shift. I think in a, in the last generation, maybe the last two generations, the perceived authority used mm-hmm. to come from the literal physical height of the pulpit, from the distance of the pulpit from others, from the yes. fact that our we we looked, we acted different, we dressed in a different way. And today, the sense of authority and connectedness and trust comes from exactly the opposite of that. Yes. Yeah, we need to make that shift. I love that. All right. Second question, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry? You know, I actually like uh, the YouVersion app mm-hmm. on my phone, especially the the shared when you can do a Bible uh, study, a devotional reading shared with other people. Yeah. That's been really kind of cool because, you know, you can tell which ones are the morning uh, birds, because they're up, you, you log in at six o'clock in the morning and they've already read it and left a comment. And then 
you see people that were the night owls because they left to come in at, you know, 11 o'clock the night before. Yeah. But I think that that's been really great to, instead of saying, all right, let's show up for a men's Bible study at seven in the morning. Well, you got some people that are going great and other people going, oh, I can't even see straight at seven o'clock. So having that shared uh, way to to be in a Bible study together and let people weigh in at the time that works best for them. I love being able to to leverage the technology that way. Yeah, we've used that at our church. And it's not just leveraging the technology. It's also using the, the work that's gone into creating the Bible study. And yep. uh, what a lot of people also don't know is that you can upload your stuff to YouTube as well. Yep. It's not completely open source. Obviously they have to vet everything that's put up there, right. but it's pretty close to open source. So you can, you can not just draw from it, but actually deposit into it as well. On Sunday morning, do you put your your notes in there for people to see as you're preaching? No, we we haven't used it on a regular basis like that, but we do. I have put a couple studies up on it in the past, so but it's not a regular part of what we've done. But it yeah, very well could be. And then you're using this really uh, ridiculously highly developed technology and, yep. and leveraging it for a church of any size. Sunday mornings, I don't know if you know a lot of people know this. There is a place where it's it's called events under you version, and you can, as a pastor, you can go in there and put in the scriptures that you're going to use on Sunday morning and then set it so yep. that it only you know pops in at 10 o'clock Sunday morning or whenever you want it to. And then people can follow along on their highlight verses. They can leave notes that are just for them, or they can make them public notes. You know, your whole outline can be listed in there, and and then they can just kind of follow along and and take notes. You know, people are going to get on their phones during their your message anyhow, so might as well have Direct them. them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of pastors have asked, you know, is it is it valuable to put together, you know, create an app for my church? And for ninety nine percent of churches, no, you don't really need an app. A website, yes, an app. It's really got different functions, but if you want one to do things like that, use the thing that's already been created. You yep. don't have to spend any money for it and use it. So that's a great, that's a great idea. Thank you for that. I love that. Yep. Uh, thirdly, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Huh, the best piece that I've ever received. You know, probably the biggest one for me is I used to be, because I, you know, really high energy most of the time. And there was a an older man uh, retired from his career, and I had asked him. I said, "Can we get together for breakfast once a month?" And I just want you to share some wisdom with me from the years. And I remember him telling me once, "You know, I watched you on Sunday morning. You uh, got done teaching the Sunday school class, and he says, I, I get it. You got you know now a sermon.' And he says, "But you went through the lobby awfully quick. There was a bunch of people that would have liked to have talked to you. I think you need to slow down." So I, that required me like cutting the Sunday school class a little bit shorter so that I would have that time. But boy, that, that next Sunday, when I just took the time to go through the lobby a little slower and people said, hi, and, and they wanted to share something with me or what a difference that made to just slow down and not just rush past the people. It's an especially helpful piece of advice in the smaller congregation because people do have an expectation of connection with you that's different in the bigger congregation. Yep, absolutely. Very important. Absolutely. All right, the last one. What's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Um, I don't know about in, in church. Well, well, I will tell a story, and, and I know that I have my wife's permission to tell this story because, okay. because she's told it publicly. There was a time where I was asked to candidate at a church, and we we spoke on a, a Sunday morning, and it was clear after we got done on Sunday morning, this just was not going to be a good fit. And so I had contacted our denominational leadership and said, you know, this is just not going to be a good fit, but, you know, I've already committed to speak on Wednesday and the next Sunday, so I'll honor that commitment so that they have somebody there. So at the Wednesday night service, we got started, my wife had stepped into the restroom and by the time that she came out, I was already up there speaking. So she came up the side and went to the uh, front row to sit down. And she kind of put her hands down to smooth down her skirt as she was going to sit down and realized that from the time she had left the restroom, she had tucked her skirt into her underwear. And then she'd walked all the way to the front of the church. And so she's laughing mm -hmm. while I'm trying to speak. And I thought she was laughing at me. So now I'm wondering... <laughs> is my zipper down? Did I just say something that I'm not aware of? You know, well, it was kind of a testimony time. I, you know, so somebody's speaking. And so I leaned down and I'm like, what's so funny? And she said, you know, I tucked my, my skirt into my underwear. I think I flashed everybody. And so then I just said, well, Hey, it's a sign that we're not supposed to be at this church. So that was just the confirmation. 
So I didn't actually get to see it because, you know, her, she, yeah, her yeah. backside wasn't facing me when she sat down, but everybody else got a chance to see it. Oh, that. that's pretty good. Well, the, 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 if the regular listeners to this may have heard this before, but that actually did happen at a church that I was at while I was sitting on stage and the woman who sang the solo had done exactly that. And she was right in front of the entire pastoral staff sitting on stage and she sang, his eye is on the sparrow and I know she, he watches me and we could barely keep ourselves from, I mean, we had to look everywhere all around except at her. And then when that's, she sang that line every time, you're really holy with your eyes closed. Oh that yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's just moving you. Yep. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Hey, <laughs> I sure appreciate your time today. Your book, uh, shepherd leadership, the metrics that really matter. I really encourage pastors to read it. It's short. It's an easy read. But as you can tell from this conversation, that didn't even cover half of what's in that book. There's so much in there that's really, really helpful. You also are the co-host of the podcast, The Craig and Greg Show, mm -hmm. which people can catch if they want to. Uh, how can people find you online or follow up with you if they'd like to in any way? I've got a blog, craigtowens.com. They can also, if they want to check out more of the book, it's just shepherdleadershipbook.com. And in both places, there's links there. If they want to uh, get in touch with me, ask a question, follow up on something, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to chat with people. Terrific. We will put links to everything we just mentioned in the show notes so you can find them there. Thank you again for your book. Thanks for your time today. I sure appreciate it. My pleasure. There has been so much written about leadership and metrics lately, it's really refreshing to me to hear Craig's take on it. So here are some key takeaways from me. First, the importance of balancing confidence and humility, of balancing work with Sabbath, and of balancing wisdom with service and so on. It's something that I think we can misunderstand when we talk about balance. Sometimes we think it means about not being particularly extreme or great on anything. But in fact, balance is so important. There are these gives and takes that we need to have in pastoral ministry. Secondly, not only is pastoring a small church something that corresponds with shepherd leadership, but the smaller church size actually helps make some aspects of shepherd leadership even more doable. Yes, there are strengths in the small church, and I love how Craig talks about those. My third takeaway, we can serve people in a more hands-on way in a smaller church because we know them better. Shepherd leadership is simply far more accessible in a smaller congregation. So again, tap into the strengths of the smaller congregation rather than pushing back against it. And then the fourth and final takeaway for now is this, the importance of being an example as a pastor to our congregation members, especially in a smaller congregation, our behavior in addition to, and maybe even more importantly than our speech, is something that people will take note of because we're actually living among them and they actually know us. Yes, this is a huge deal for us. We need to be behaving well as well as speaking well. And the more people know us, the more important that is. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.